Well, this is like what appealed to me about a lot of games culture is the like Warhammer 40k like games workshop, like medievalist, like a uh, wood engraving culture, which is just like so far away from this like flat color corporate art form like these little cartoon figures that we're looking at here on the cast thing and then you've got these like crinky crinkly like wrinkly ragged old men and this like you know they're, they're like metal aesthetic of like the 80s it's like yeah it's very away from that incredibly baroque yeah. and covered in skulls if, if anyone has any insight into the relationship between like warhammer games workshop and the band bolt thrower i'm really interested in that i have no insight into that whatsoever it could not speak to that. Because uh, I think they're the same artist. So Bolt Thrower, like, who comes out of, like, a very specific, like, English lefty metal scene that I think the same broad influences are involved in that original games workshop, you know, kind of critique of Thatcher, intermetal, over-the-top satire. And the same artist that did all the art at the time for Games Workshop products did the Bolt Thrower album covers. I think that's right. And Bolt Thrower kind of conceived of themselves as music that they would play whilst playing war games. And it's really like if you're old like me and have an affection for Red Dwarf, there's an episode where they travel back in time and tease a band called Smeg in the Heads and there's someone in that band who's from Napalm Death. It's all from that same cultural milieu, which is is really interesting because now Warhammer's associated with Trump support, right? And I guess the same kind of cultural milieu, milieu as uh, like the 2000 AD comics with with uh, Judge Dredd and and the you know like just just uh, a heightening of the of the aesthetic of Thatcherism. This twice, twice. It is disingenuous. The situation now is even worse. Flood is not about the poverty line. Um, hi everyone, it's really exciting to be here. As you can tell, Flood is doing an ambitious left podcast crossover thing, so you might recognise a few voices. We've got um, Dave from uh, Living the Dream and Isaac from Not Good Enough, um, and we're going to be talking about games and gaming. Uh, I'm mostly going to leave it up to the others because my experience of gaming is largely through a bit of D&D and a solid addiction to online chess, but I'll, I'll ask um, Isaac like what how did you get into games and like what what have you been doing in gaming recently sure um yeah i i, I guess i've just been playing dnd my entire life basically um yeah uh, uh i i got given a a dnd red box as a as a child by one of my one of my dad's friends and um bullied my brothers into playing it and have kind of just been been uh fiddling around with dnd things since then um and and after after kind of a a fairly long long hiatus um yeah i've kind of come come back um and am working on a um on a a uh, role-playing game about cute little mice uh who go on adventures in a big dark scary world called mouse ritter yeah, I quite like the aesthetics because I read a lot of the Redwall books as a kid and I thought they were fantastic. And I think probably part of why I started enjoying D&D is because I'd already developed a healthy sense of fantasizing about a medieval world, as a, but like through the lens of Mouse. 
So yeah. it looks quite good for that. And Dave, you've just made a game as well? Yeah, well, in the stage of designing a game, I just backed Isaac's um, game on Kickstarter because it looks so fantastic. Thank you. Uh, so, yeah, I'm involved with some friends in, uh, I guess, a company called Fat Ran Games, and we're designing a board game uh, called Baby Boomer Have It All, where you play baby boomers and you win by maximising your happiness through accumulating uh, grandchildren and property and wealth. So it's an attempt, what we're trying to do, I guess, is to make like a very approachable social satire of some of the burning issues that are going on at the moment uh, on the level that they're understood, but pull in those questions that seem to be really important at the moment about intergenerational inequality and particularly the role that, that housing plays. So it's, um, we've found in playing it, it's less just super critical to baby boomers because a lot of what you try to do is improve your children, improve their looks and personality and careers, and your kids keep on doing things like losing personality by reading Zizek or taking up the guitar or wasting your money on business ideas. But I got into role-playing games, I guess, in a really similar way. I had When I was really young, like in year two, one of my friends used to bring his older brother's monster manual to school, and we used to just read it, and then got the red box. A friend got a red box at a particular time, and we played that, though I don't think we really understood it. Then in my teenage years, I was really into Australian role-playing game convention culture. So I guess we moved to it. Like, at that time, D&D was very uncool, and games like Vampire and Werewolf that marketed themselves as kind of gothic punk were the things that 13- and 14-year-olds uh, were really obsessed with and particular kind of gaming scene around conventions. I was really, really into that. And then I've had a 20-something year hiatus and in the last couple of years really thrown myself back into D&D 5e, but now starting to uh, organise to run some other systems as well. And I'm just obsessed with role-playing games and matt you're a huge nerd as well yeah i'm a gigantic nerd yes um well actually declan you and i have been playing D D together for a long time um yeah but that's um i don't want people to know about the details <laughs> of my life <laughs> um in fact i think that like most games i've ever played you've been involved with so um actually when it comes to being a gigantic nerd no like i got i never had a red box i feel like i, I missed out on the the rite of passage that is getting a red box. Um, I bought like a monster manual at some point, just like off the shelf, not knowing anything about D&D because I was just fascinated by it. But then I remember we played a lot in high school and I've just been like playing different forms of D&D uh, with different groups of people on and off ever since. I also, at some point, uh, got very into this online blogging culture about D&D, which was quite a complex story and it's kind of wrapping up now but this like um nexus of all different people like writing game materials uh it's called the so what it was this thing called the osr which was a conscious attempt to uh bring back more of the like old-fashioned school of dnd that uh like people were playing in the 70s and 80s and it became this like collective writing project with a lot of different people like like online, just like posting stuff on blogs, posting a lot of like little different things and stuff that kind of trimmed, stepped over the boundaries in some way of like just game content to become this like all different kinds of like micro fiction and like experimental uh, literature and stuff like that. Um, so I spent a lot of time working on that and then inspired me to like get back into games again. 
I think I think kind of like like the Warhammer culture, the uh, the OSR culture is a lot about uh, being able to just make up a weird monster. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, and and have it and have it, you know, write write something weird and frightening and um, and force your players to interact with it. It's interesting, Matt, talking about like maybe that you started by reading a monster manual. My kids are obsessed by reading the monster manual. And I re- like I run a D&D group for kids and now one of those kids who's 11 runs an, his own game. Um, but they will come over and just read the monster manual. And my four-year-old makes up monsters, then demands that I take those bits of paper and I stick them in the monster manual so they can be used for D&D. That's adorable. I, like, I remember this pretty distinctly, actually, because I would have been, like, 12 or 13. I remember, like, just I was just in a bookstore somewhere and found, like, the... It was, like, a from D, the 3.5, uh, that edition of D&D, and just picking up a monster manual and just looking at the art and going, well, I'm going to need this. Like, I don't know what this is, but for something about it was just captivating to me. And I think it does speak to the degree to which, like, a lot of D&D... And like D and D books, cross like have value just of themselves as things. It just like there's a really interesting relationship to me about like the the game book just as a literary object, as opposed to like the game book as an actual tool for play. And also the appeal of of world be- building and fantasy, right? That well, I think we live in a very particular historical moment where fantasy is probably more popular than it's ever been before, and has taken on a particular role in in ideology. But one of the things that people enjoy is the world building. Like I'm parallel to, I guess, like D&D. There used to be these individual games that you could play called um, Fighting Fantasy that would like choose your own adventure, but you rolled dice. And I think I think some of the people involved in that had been around that Games Workshop scene, but they had a couple of books that were just world building books because they tried to enter into uh, role playing games proper. And I was obsessed with one of with those book with a particular book, their world building book. I must have been eleven or twelve and just read it for weeks and weeks and weeks. Yeah, that seems like a good segue into one of the things I want to talk a little bit about on this podcast is how game culture has evolved over the last like few decades because it does seem that what we're in at the moment is we're in a historical moment where over the last couple of decades we've seen this explosion in the popularity of like games of all kinds right i mean like to some extent video games but to some like and maybe video games like the biggest example but like you know D went from being just like a thing that was purely for nerds just like a, a complete subculture to something that like exploded into the popular imagination something that was now like podcasts about you know this whole podcast where you just listen to other people play in D. there's like normal people playing it for the first time and we're in a that's related to like the turning the popularization of fantasy and like of comic books and like the you know the just the whole nerd culture going mainstream thing and this is really interesting to me because it seems like there's a real question of why this happened when it did, because there's no like to actually play D and D. It's like to play a video game, you need a computer, right? So it makes sense that like you needed a technological advance, but to play Dungeons and Dragons, all you need is like some funny shaped dice, right? It's like conceptually like the ancient Romans had twenty sided dice. They had like 
you know, in medieval times, they had all the, the technology that you theoretically need to do something like Dungeons and Dragons. Not that exact thing, but like the idea of like it's some sort of collaborative, collaborative storytelling game where you all, you, everyone takes on the role of a different character. Um, and then there's someone guiding you through a series of adventures. There's some sort of randomization element that lets you resolve various conflicts and then it's a kind of collective fear activity that you all play together recreationally it seems like that it's not entirely clear that could have in theory emerged at any point in history but in fact it emerged specifically in the 1970s and then it became like a cultural phenomenon in the like now in the 21st century and so i'm really interested in uh like why that happened and so I want to get Dave because he's uh, the oldest of us and he's been around the longest and he remembers like what it used to be like to talk a little bit about like that earlier game culture yeah, and then maybe about how it's developed over the years. Could, could I could I start by doing some like some bullshit theorization? I would love, I would love that. That would delight me. Because you like you identified this really interesting thing that we see this game culture emerges in the mid seventies. Right, and I think that's factually correct. That seems to be, broadly speaking, the dating of a number of interesting transformations in capitalism and the world system. It's probably the end of what we might call the red decade. So you know that wave of struggles that throws the, um, you know the. The, the world system, Fordist capitalism, the Keynesian compromise into disarray. And it's the point which we date a number of different changes, which we probably theorise as neoliberalism, post-modernity, post-Fordism, the shift from the disciplinary society to the society of control or, or things like that. So I think that gives us a beginning of an insight to say well something is happening within the mode of production and the accordant society around it that is transforming and it's transforming because of struggles and destabilization and then a new form of capitalism emerges out of that which is different in different ways and one thing that seems to change is what culture looks like how it is practiced and its prevalence and so we can probably dig into that a little bit more i've been kind of um how can I think about this? Like, what what are some of the ideas about uh, that transformation, and are they relevant? So, one of the um, schools of thought that I've always been very interested in and quite influenced by are the kind of Italians that come out of that. People like Antonio Negri, Paolo Verno, so people that are often called uh, post autonomia. Uh, and I'm not sure uh, if you guys are familiar with this stuff. For my generation, it was really we read all this stuff, but. I'm not sure if do you read Negri or Verno. I just don't want to be too boring. I personally do not. Like, I've I'm, heard the name cool. Negri, All right, but so, I'm not, like, familiar okay, with Okay, so if you don't mind, I'll just do a very quick sketch of one Please of the things I argue. So get ready for this being super nerdy because I'm going to talk about D&D and the Grundrisse at the same time. So the Grundrisse is one of Marx's notebooks that he, he puts together whilst working on the ideas that later take shape in capital. And there's a very famous section of the Grundrisse called the Fragment of Mach on Machines. And in that section, Marx argues that the development of productivity in capitalism will hit a point that capitalism will become so productive, what will be driving things is not individual labour, 
but rather the collective scientific technical cap capacities of humanity, which he calls the general intellect. And this will create a contradiction in capitalism because the old forms of measure, value, won't be able to fit with this, you know, all of humanity's scientific and technological capacities being put to work. The Italians take this and they change it. They begin to theorise the kind of capitalism that emerges out of the 70s as one where the general intellect, which is the driving productive capacities of capitalism, is not embodied in machines, but it's embodied in people. That what is increasingly driving the transformations of capital is immaterial intellectual labour, the ability to kind of collectively cooperate, to talk and communicate. That's the general intellect. It lives in our historically specific and, and biologically determined, like biological and historical ca capabilities, and capitalism is harnessing that post 70s. Someone like Verno really drills into this and is like, this is really the capacity for language, right? That what is becoming increasingly important to capitalism as it moves into the neoliberal era is the always existing in humanity, historically determined capacity for communication and language, you know, and we can see that in lots of ways where it's the capacity to communicate constantly incited to talk, you know, constantly in meetings. That's what's put to work. That becomes the driving force in capitalism at this moment, the general intellect as a lived ability. That's pretty interesting if we're then thinking about we live in a moment where games become more important, where the leisure activities that we take seem to um, you know, be about communication and social, and, and social skills that are often not that dissimilar from what we're called on to, be, to do in the workplace now. And it's interesting that, you know, gamification, gamification is increasingly how people describe what work should be like. Is this making sense or is this total bullshit? No, it's, that, it's making sense to me. It's like, that's actually really interesting. The idea that the skills we would use in a D&D &D session around the table, which are skills of negotiation, of like uh, collaboration, it's kind of improv, like yes, adding skills of like, um, yeah, it's very similar to like something that you would use in a meeting, right? Something and a specific kind of meeting where you're trying to work out a narrative for something or you're trying to like, you know, you might be trying to like market a product or you mm. try, might be trying to work out a strategy to get people to work together. It may be a, just like meetings that I've been in where we've been like, um, you know, just and that particular kind of uh knowledge work that really only emerges in this 70s period for, for sure and moves from being peripheral to central so so maybe I'll, I'll pull back from engaging any deeper in like people i'm probably mangling verno people should go off and read it themselves particularly a book called a grammar of the multitude is is really great um insight in into that so i think we can locate that there is a transformation in capitalism communication and language and the immaterial and intellectual becomes more important to capitalism production, production proper. That seems to happen at the same place. But also I think what, what also accompanies this is the growing importance in uh, size and uh, as a proportion of the culture industry in capitalism. That the production of, of cultural artefacts becomes more and more um, 
part of, of where capital accumulation happens. So there, I guess, some of those kind of the broad tendencies. But I also don't think people are just kind of victims to these processes. That what is also happening in, in the 70s, I guess, is the closure of the previous radical wave. Uh, and I think cultural spaces simultaneously become a focus for a lot of utopian and critical energy, right? So uh, we were talking very briefly before about Games Workshop and its crossover um, with the band Bolt Thrower. But of course, like the same time games are emerging, you know, punk and hip hop are emerging. So we've got this other tendency too, where as the political proper begins to shut down, that's a big claim I'm making, and I'm not saying nothing political or interesting or uprisings happened since the late 70s, but more of that utopian energy is going towards the cultural. So if we were going to paint in really broad brushstrokes, I think that gives us some broad firmament to understand what is going on and why games... Uh, what is the context for games becoming so important and locating it to those broader historical transformations but i think there's a lot more we can then dig into from there yeah like i was thinking about one of the things i've been thinking about with regards to games is the way that uh the game as an art form only really makes sense in the uh context of this kind of mass pop culture like um and really mass pop culture literacy because a game is always a simulation of something and it's like and the massive diversity of games and like different role-playing games and board games and things that we have now um one of the things that makes that possible is all these like especially role-playing games like the way you make a new role-playing game is you try and you simulate you simulate a new genre or you simulate a new like um, like either a genre of like speculative fiction. So there's like a, you know, D&D, which is classic, like even D is not really a Tolkien simulator so much as it's like a sword and sorcery, like uh, Jack Vance kind of simulator. But then you have all these other like, you know, Vampire the Masquerade, that's like a kind of 90s um, Gothic, like Buffy kind of thing. And then there's all these little, there's like all these other games that like represent these other little subcategories and subgenres of like paranormal teen romance or like there's a game called Fiasco, which is like a Coen Brothers movie simulator. Um, there's Call of Cthulhu for specifically Lovecraft. There's a million of these like, and they all really like this turn in art towards like uh, towards simulation and towards expecting this like very in-depth media literacy from your audience um so very postmodern, very like and like it seems really tied to this like postmodern turn in art where it's a, like this kind of endless echoing of other things mm. so th this is actually interesting it ties back matt to verno's argument where cultural literacy is now crucial for people to engage in productive activity in certain spheres of capital so, you know, like Verno would say that in the Fordist workplace, no one gave a fuck really what was in your head. There used to be a sign that just said, you know, men at work, silence. Talking wasn't necessary. You just had to be there, whatever your emotional state, and do the work. But now if you go into an office, or not even an office, you know, like you're driving Uber or 
you know, you're, you're working in a fast food place, your ability to talk about culture and to be constantly incited to talk about culture is a necessary part of you functioning as a, as a productive team. So I think that role, that pop culture, and so we're really talking about the culture industry here, aren't we? You know, when we're saying pop culture, it's, it's popular, but it's not popular in the sense that it just floats up from the bottom. Yeah, definitely. And this actually, it's interesting because this goes back to debates in the early 80s about what was happening with around culture between people who saw themselves as we're in this emancipatory postmodern moment where everyone is making new stories and narratives and kind of those people that had been influenced by the by the Frankfurt School and like this is just the culture machine grinding down our ideology, grinding down our, ourselves to everything to fit a particular ideology. But, you know, that that production of what, what pop culture does is now partly what we're, what is necessary for us to function as as productive members of contemporary capitalism, which I think is super interesting. But the other thing I guess that you've identified there in terms of building games, that innovation, if you've been quite critical, is is fairly derivative, right? Take something that exists, put a rule system on it so people can experience the experience that they already expected, which um, really, because I was preparing for today's show, I was like, I'm going to want to talk about Adorno. Then I remembered I hadn't read Adorno for like 10 years. And I went back and started reading some of his stuff on the culture industry. And that's one of the things that he's even picking up in the 40s, that like what that everyone expects the innovation, that something has happened in how culture now relates to capitalism, how it's organised as an economic activity, that... Um, the surprise is derivative. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. I, like, I was just thinking, like, I guess that speaks to the question of um, when you have, like, a, a cultural... Like, a recurring question in this kind of, like, fandom conversation is when you have this, like, major cultural touchstone where I think Star Wars is probably, like, the clearest example where it's something that, on the one hand, it's clearly, like, the property at the moment of the Disney Corporation... But on the other hand, there is this like organic element to the fandom, um, and there is, and like D and D kind of makes that really clear, and that it's on the one hand, it's about there you as a creator, it's about like all consumers of D and D, it's about making you into a million like little creators, like it necessarily has to have this organic component to it, right? And like I've played in. And like something like Star, like I've played in Star Wars games, uh, like run by people who are really into Star Wars, who got really into like inventing their own like Star Wars stuff, and like expanding the universe of Star Wars and like building their own, like, you know, like using it as a springboard for this like genuinely like interesting and like valuable creative activity, but then obviously inherently limited in what they can do there because like these things like. All these things, whether it's like Star Wars or Tolkien or whatever, Pokemon, exist in this place where they're, on the one hand, like privately owned by someone, but then on the other hand, like feel like almost should be collectively owned. Like there's a there's just like a limit. There's a a thicker sense in which you can see people trying to take collective ownership yeah. of these things, and then just like constantly being frustrated. Or like um, superheroes, the other like. An even clearer example, maybe like Batman. I was interested in what you were saying about um, Utopia and and like the the way that um, all these like kind of fantastic games start existing 
in like this this new kind of political economy that's emerging and we're all, all engaging in fantasy but like how much all that fantasy particularly seems to be harking back to like the european middle ages it's it's almost universal and i i want like i wonder why why that was this why like why medieval europe is like the set like the mm. fantasy setting and like I, I think part of it's just tolkien but part of it's probably something else going on as well uh, well, a couple of, couple of things. Like, if, if you're talking about the utopian element, I think part of the utopian element is that games are seen by people as a space of meaningful, non-alienated labour, I guess, and being with people. That's part of the utopian element, isn't it? You know, in the, which I think any hobby... The, hobbies are huge at the moment. Everyone's really serious about their hobbies. Games just part of that. And part of it is the utopian element is I can do things that look like work but aren't subjected specifically the tool of capital. Um, but, the fa- but the idea of fantasy as utopia... So on one hand, I think your answer... The answer to your question is, well, that's a history of, of colonialism, right? That some pasts are given more important than other pasts. Though I think we could go into how that is changing and that people from a whole range of different cultural and national backgrounds are making things. But I think part of the promise of fantasy is, again, the idea that you could live a life of meaning, right? That the past is seen as the, sp- as the space where heroic lives could be lived, where the things that you did was important and that you could either achieve something good or defeat something evil. Um, There's a reactionary content to that, but the positive content to it is that it seems to be the space of a more desirable life than the present or the future offers. Mm. I I think that that the, the, um, the allure of that is for i mean i mean um the allure of that uh means that it does like like fan- fantasy uh, aligns with with uh fascist values quite strongly in that in that it's it's all, uh, quite often about a a return to a a um imaginary um perfect past um and i you know that that's that's um why i i think like the use the use of fantasy has to be quite carefully uh, carefully done in in order to not to not be reactionary. Yeah, because Tolkien is Tolkien is not a fascist. I think as we understand, often use fascist, but he is a reactionary little Englander that fits on the spectrum of fascist adjacent, right? Which mm. doesn't make his work not fun to read or appealing. Mm. And I'm not saying we should cancel Tolkien, though. Probably that would be a great. Like hashtag to promote. Yeah, no. Cancel Tolkien. <laughs> only read young adult literature about vampires. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Strongly in my view. But but there's certainly that that because it is it's you know like the the ideal of a pre-modern integrated society with natural hierarchies against modernity. Is this stuff that you think about Isaac when you were when you were putting together Mouse Ritter and like the the way that like the way that like living at this heroic fantasy is like is is really satisfying and provides meaning in and like a, a an unalienated kind of form of like the postmodern self or are you just kind of putting together funny like adventures for the sake of adventures um i would say it's I, like like i think that mouse ritter is definitely more of the the latter than the former it 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 uh there's not a lot of um intentional politics in Mouse Ritter and and the politics that it draws on is um 
more like like it is an intentional uh uh callback to to um to the classic D tropes of um uh, going into a going into a, a, a dark and dangerous place and stealing some treasure and trying to come back alive, uh, which in in it, in itself uh, is a a kind kind of uh, a a colonialist uh, trope. Um, I don't think there's any getting away with getting away from that. Um, but um, yeah, like like there's I I think the I think the fact that that um, you are playing as 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 mice does uh, recontextualize that a bit um, because you you're at the bottom of the food chain and there's no there's no getting away from that you're always going to be uh, the smallest the smallest creatures in a in a in a big dangerous world. And I think in some ways what we're saying in terms of the critique of ideology in game, so not just games as they exist as an artefact of the culture industry, but their actual ideological content, is not particularly new. This has been going on in games worlds for since the late... In fact, since the late 70s. I remember going to gaming conventions in the early 90s and people used to wear T-shirts where it had a picture of a bunch of like classic D&D orcs carrying banners that said Orcish Liberation Front. Like obviously kind of engaging in a particular kind of end of the 80s, early 90s humour about, well, we can recognise the position of the oppressed. You know, the, the, the things that are happening in the real world are reproduced in, in fantasy. And a lot of, I think, some of the games that have developed in, in, the, 90, in the 90s were specific critiques of the 80s fantasy of... Um, of D&D, but it's interesting how that's been reinterpreted. I don't know if people spend a lot of time seeing or getting caught up in the culture war in role-playing games that is going on, but it's very similar to that earlier point about Warhammer, that things that were seen as a satire of the right are now seen as being endorsed by as statements that are positive for conservative or reactionary values. So D&D tried to be um, very cutting edge in the early 90s by inventing a setting called Dark Sun. Did you ever play it, Matt or Isaac? I've never played it, but I've read the books. I, I have not either. The Prism Pentad. Are they the books, <laughs> sure. Matt? Um, no, like the actual, like the game books. Oh, okay, okay. Pentad I actually is. read some of the novels, which I think is wild. That's like, amazing. Like when you meet someone who's read all the... Um, who's the elf with two sorts, the dark elf? Drist? Drizzt Do Erden. And there's what, like 54 books, right? Yeah. It's, yeah Who has like, read those? Fucking someone has. Like, I haven't. But, like, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's, like, there's books about, there's Magic the Gathering books as well. There's pretty much, like, there's someone out there. There's the Warhammer books actually are a huge thing. Yeah, there's this YouTube station by this guy who's like a kind of radical but really, really into Warhammer, or at least a bit of a lefty called Arbitor Ian, where he's doing a book reading series at the moment. And they got one of the authors, like apparently in their book club, one of the authors of the Warhammer books came along and they had a chat, so it's just fucking wild. But Dark Sun was like really a laboured metaphor for um, climate change, or back then... You know, what we used to call the greenhouse effect, right? Where there was a world where the use of magic had turned everything into a shitty desert and there was kind of racism and there was slavery and it was seen as like, you know, D&D trying to, I think, really make a critique of the time. And to give you a sense of what was going on at the time, Vampire, I'm getting so far into the nerd. So Vampire was produced by a company called White Wolf. 
White Wolf used to have a magazine, and in every issue of that mag- magazine, there was like an environmental column, which might have been from memory called Earth First, right? So that that's kind of that's kind of the milieu that it came from. But now, if you go onto like a Dark Sun Facebook page, it's very much like Dark Sun is the gritty game that no SJW wants to play. So, you know, the, the, the culture war has taken it and, and retransformed that critique. Yeah, the I, don't, I almost forgot about all these, like, SJW culture wars, which I was, like, on the periphery, on the periphery of, but, like, definitely witnessing in very, in, like, very intense fashion in spaces that I was in. And was always just, like, I don't want to engage with this. And it is true that, like, you see just, like, the like the just the voices of different like political things just like bleeding through like that wife white wolf thing like it's such a 90s kind of environmentalism as well i believe like they had a game about being werewolves that i think had a huge like and i guess the whole like the like 90s like wiccan thing as well and like neo-pagan stuff like yeah werewolf is basically an aggressive version of captain planet where the the evil thing the penumbra was mm. the spiritual force that was causing ecological devastation. Yeah. I think um uh like progressive uh media being recontextualized for reactive values is not is nothing new. Um do you, do you guys know about um the landlords game? That's Monopoly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, Monopoly was was originally called the landlords game designed by a woman called elizabeth mcgee she she was a, a georgist and designed the landlords game to kind of instruct uh people on georgist principles and how rents are bad and landlords are bad the game was originally structured with two different game modes that you could play you could play the monopoly version or the prosperity version where the monopoly version was similar to the monopoly we know today and the prosperity version was people shared in the wealth and it was you know kind of came came from this tradition of 19th century parlor games which were designed to be instructive tools to teach moral lessons but as we see with monopoly that has then been recontextualized and the original progressive message of um, rent is bad has been stripped away from it. There's the, I think there's the other interesting relationship when we're talking about games and politics is if they're fun. So there's... Uh, yeah. Have you played Class War, the board game? No. It's awful, right? Like, so that does not surprise me. It was produced in the late 70s. I can't remember the Marxist theorist who made it. There is some story that could be apocryphal that, like... The, the factory it was produced at was actually maybe on strike and he helped organise, like, um, strike breaking to get his board game, Class War, the board game produced. Even if that's not true, I want it to be true. <laughs> but it's just a really, really didactic version of orthodox 70s Marxism where there's either going to be socialist revolution or nuclear war. And if you're not the bourgeoisie or the proletariat, if you're the students or the middle classes, you, can, you can't you can win by yourself. You're just pulled in one force to the other, depending on die rolls and what happens as you move around a board. So that's quite boring. But um, Geert Abord, the situationist theorist, he think, spent, I think he spent the last 10 years of his life when he'd kind of retreated um, to a little house somewhere in France working on a strategy game, Kriegspiel, which I think just translates as war game, which um, is what it was like a kind of simulation of early 19th century Napoleonic battles, which how I understand it, I've never played it and there's some controversy around copyright of all things with it. Um, 
is that it was all about an attempt to teach people strategy. That one of the things that he walked away, and I'm really waiting for people who understand the trajectory of the situation that's better than me, um, that he one of the things he came out of the 60s moment was the need to understand strategy and that's what's going on in, in the game. Kriegspiel is a long tradition of war games that came out of um, the 19th century and were developed um, by the Prussian military to teach army officers how to wage war. And you can kind of draw a, a pretty direct line from Kriegspiel to, to war gaming to Dungeons and Dragons itself. That's interesting how we are tracing this stuff back to this like 19th century tradition of didactic board games and like didactic role-playing games and like this has always i think been a major source of the culture war around like the actual ideological content of games is like can and should a game be didactic and really like a broader culture war topic where it's like the progressive you know there's a progressive stance which i think is uh, wrong which is that like the role of these art forms is to teach people like moral virtues and yeah, whether that totally. be like like yeah you can see this certainly in a lot of like fantasy fiction today and you like you can it seems to have kind of like ebbed a bit now but like i remember being involved in some pretty serious culture wars around like someone had a game which was just like i forget what it was called it was like the anti-imperialist board game you know it was this like game that came out and was just meant to like simulate like one player was the imperialist and the other players were like the colonized and it was just like meant to make you feel bad and teach you that like colonization is wrong and you know it ties into this thing about like this ongoing argument which is just like is dnd colonialist is it like is, is it racist to kill orcs aren't they kind of like isn't there some racist vibes to like Tolkien's orcs is it maybe like colonialist to be like you know, murder hobos just stealing all the loot. And it's like, yeah, but, like, also what's fun, though, right? That is part of the the kind of ongoing culture war in role-playing games where I think it's probably pretty fair to say that the setting and values of Dungeons & Dragons itself, colonialist and reactionary, but also they're fun. And I think that admitting that it's fun to be the bad guys is okay. Yeah, so I think there's a number of kind of interesting things here. Like, so, so one thing is about, the idea that a game has a purpose broader than the playing of the game that has some kind of moral virtue to it, right? Which we've already slightly touched on. But to give you some insight into the transformation of game culture, in the early 90s Australian convention scene, the game, the word that people used to use to describe what a good rolling role-playing game produced was catharsis, right? So, which is completely ridiculous now that I look back on it. But we were young and we took ourselves very seriously that what you should do in a role-playing game is create some tra- like like it's a Greek tragedy, is to create some traumatic experience for the players, so they undergo emotional catharsis and come out better people. That's amazing, right? So, and, and so so that well, not even kind of better people, but you know, and so people go, "How's that going?" It was really cathartic. I was using the word cathartic before I understood what it meant. In the best tradition of the left, yeah, well, history, you, you know, like, and and this, and also like this scene wasn't really of the left, you know, that 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 kind of scene was far more, its cultural influence would be more like tism, you know, that kind of, they're on the liberal left, but they're critical of everything, critical of transformative narratives because they were really university-driven clubs that built the convention scene. That was kind of the politics of the moment, with some radicals and some reactionaries in the mix 
I think one one of the things you can't downplay is that the histories and inequalities of 500 years of capitalism have reproduced themselves in culture pretty obviously. So the long-term struggle of people who are excluded because of that hierarchy of identities to be included in, in cultural production seems to me just hands down a good thing, right? Um, and one of the kind of battle terrains that that we have progressed during the neoliberal era. But I think something that's been lost, not because of that, but in the context of that, is the critique of culture industries or ideological state apparatuses or whatever particular framework, the spectacle you want to use in and of itself and rather thinking that we can take these apparatuses of culture and stop being stop them use, being used to make reactionary people but use them to make progressive people where part of the radical imaginary would these things would be profoundly overcome and transformed. You know, it used to be part of the 20th century radical imagination that it, we wouldn't just have radical art, but art as a separation from life would itself be abolished, right? So in the same way, I think we can say we don't just want radical games, we want the division between work and playtime to be overcome and play to infect our entire lives, right? Like I think part of the everyone can joke about the hardest thing about playing D&D is organising the time to play D&D, right? Because there's no time to play. So, you know, I, I have a friend, Nick Southall, when he, he's a great communist from Wollongong, when he was in kindy, organised a protest demanding more playtime, right? <laughs> And, and I think that's still the radical demand, you know, that it's not just that we want progressive games, we want the times to play with our friends. Um, the flip side of this, while I seem to be going to another monologue, is capitalism also offer, wants to offer us endless playtime, but that's an experience that they can accumulate capital out of. You know, so play games on your phone, gamify everything, but that leads to accumulation. So maybe we can talk, you know, it's about the battle for more time to play, but also a battle over play. Yeah, like, I guess this comes back to what I was thinking about copyright and, like, the fan conflict, where, like, one of the things I always think about with D&D is, you know, you don't really need the books to play D&D. Like, you know, D&D is obviously owned by Wizards of the Coast, Um like they're obviously trying to sell you these books but like there's always an extent to which being able to play and like i've never really bought a lot of DD books and i've always like found other ways to play the game and also they can't really stop pe like people publish a million just like hacks and like small scale like role-playing system well i got you know like isaac's game like just got a kickstarter right and so like the production of games like all the most interesting actual work being done in games is like by these like small just zine companies and just like on Kickstarter and just like on blogs and like it seems to be constantly pushing against like the bounds of like these big companies mm -hmm. that like yeah and that goes double for like you know it's something like the the Star Wars game or like the like a superhero game or something. 
So to, to pull this back maybe to people like Paolo Verno and Tony Negri, like one of the things they talk about in contemporary capitalism is the externalization of production to the end point user, meaning that part of what we part of the production of a community of a commodity or some element around a service or commodity is not just made in a factory then shipped out but is made by the endpoint user so one of the examples i always used to love is you know if people go to uni now and they use a service like turn it in so turn it in is a service when you submit an essay your essay gets read against a database to detect plagiarism but every essay you submit becomes part of that database. So Turnitin as a company sells to universities a product that is produced by its students, right? Uh, Facebook is probably a great example, or even the service we are using now to record this podcast, we are producing the content that we are paying for, right? But it seems to be that like Wizards of the Coast have been quite smart at some point to work out how they could lean into that. Well, on one hand, not trying to control the IP, but producing a lot of things under um, a you know the open gaming license, and then to work out ways to produce income streams that pull money out of and transform it into capital out of something whose appeal is maintained by. Um, so many fans, right? Which, which then gives you another insight into kind of the culture war fights because then there's a necessary policing, I guess, that the culture war doesn't become too toxic that it ruins the product. But at the same time, yeah, sorry, go, I, I don't want to be just negative about it though. You know, like part of the reason capital has to do this is because it cannot simply control the creativity and enjoyment yeah, yeah, that actually gives it content. I don't want to say it's just like a vampire squid sucking everything out. Like it's capital's response to mass creativity. Though I think that the way that um, Wizards of the Coast has uh, used their IP with the open games license or with the current uh, Adventurers Guild or whatever it's called have produced some of the worst periods in role-playing game culture because it becomes because Dungeons and Dragons at itself is such a cultural touchstone and a cultural monolith that you know it kind of becomes a shorthand for this style of game the way in kind of the mid 2000s that Wizards of the Coast slightly opened up their copyright and allowed people to make variations on Dungeons and Dragons then produced this glut of games which were very small twists on Dungeons & Dragons without a lot of interesting design or interesting ideas going into it. And I think that also helped them maintain that cultural hegemony that I think we're only kind of breaking away from now. Yeah, and there's a million of these, like... Well... Like, I, I've just been thinking about, like, the... the OSR thing, right? Which was like a kind of came out of this was like a conscious attempt to like produce games that like emulated can you tell me what osr is because i don't know it stands for old school renaissance um and it was just like a movement in game design right it was just like like any hobbyist movement just like a bunch of nerds online like getting together and doing stuff and it was a conscious attempt to uh reproduce like an older system of uh like an older period of um playing Dungeons and Dragons basically. And it's like, okay, like, so characters are gonna die a lot easier. Um, there's gonna be the rules are gonna be a lot more stripped down. 
Um, there's going to be a lot more horror content. There's going to be a lot more like edge lord content. Um, there's going to like the aesthetic is very like the old Warhammer stuff. This is kind of like what Dave's been talking about, like about the way that this like uh, Warhammer 2000 AD uh, like vault thrower. There was someone said something else that I've forgotten, but this like uh, kind of grungy 70s 80s aesthetic then got like has been re and this always it's always had kind of a right-wing vibe and it was often like it turned out but it ended up being this like yeah so like it was a attempt to like design all these like little game systems and then like lots of game content um around this idea of what D should be like and there was like all these publishers a publisher called lamentations of the flame princess that like printed all these little books that were like i did leave Give you a saying, it would just be like, welcome to the, the corpse grave of the tomb lord. And you'd go into like the first room and there would be like worm made out of skulls. And then you'd go into the next room and there'd be like a bunch of naked women with huge boobs. And then there would be like a river of blood and like people's faces getting peeled off and stuff like that. It's like, it's kind of like maybe underselling it, but like. <laughs> Wait, it sounds great. That's a pretty good description. <laughs> yeah. I, I think one of the things that's really here is like the end of over identification as a form of critique. So, so like if you went to a gig at a certain period of time in the 80s and 90s, unless you went to a gig that you knew was a Nazi gig organized by Nazis full of Nazis, and you saw on stage, but it's, so unless it was that gig, you went to a gig and there was a whole bunch of people in Nazi uniform zigheiling, you knew it was a critique of Nazism. Does that make sense? Like, and I, that's the, because it was a kind of cultural tactic, which Jeget calls over-identification. And he uses that to describe bands like, you know, good bands like Leibach and shitty bands like that German industrial band whose name I've just forgotten that was very popular for a while. Rammstein, right? You know, he would say both of those things are engaged in the strategy of over-identification. It, it's critique. And I think you could say there was a period of time in role-playing games and in comic book culture and in music where that was a fairly common cultural technique where I don't think over-identification necessarily works anymore for either progressives or reactionaries and you can no longer assume over-identification is at play. What is over-identification? So it would be like that you engage in something, dressing up in uniforms and zig-heiling, and you do it to such an extreme that the audience understands it is criticism. Like Judge Dredd, right? Like, you know, or, or, or the Warhammer universe, that you've engaged in, in something and people get that that, that, is, that is criticism. And I think that was part of a certain, you know, maybe it worked, maybe it didn't work. There's a different cultural milieu that, that's going on. I think that is that doesn't exist anymore. Well, um, like, the right knows about irony now. The right hasn't developed a much more, like, camp, like Donald Trump politics, where they do their, like, genuine reactionary beliefs as hard as possible in a ironic way that, like, in no way undercuts the fact that they fully believe it. Which, which is something, like, and, you know, we probably don't want to talk about, we are talking about the culture wars, and we don't want to just talk about the culture wars and the level of the culture wars. But there, I guess it also has been a strategy that these spaces of gaming have proven to be like effective areas of recruitment right 
you know, as as well as making like a whole lot of money. Uh, is it is that as much the same in the role playing world as it is in like people complaining about He Man cartoons or Gamergate or those kind of things? Do the same dynamics play out in tabletop role playing game fandom, or is it different? What I remember from the really like hardened period of like culture war D and D stuff is there was a there was certainly a very strong ongoing conflict between like the OSR people and like what I think was called like the story game people, which had a different approach to game design, which was more kind of narrative based. It was less like, like you wouldn't die. It was more about let's make sure everyone has a good time and like tells an emotionally meaningful story than like, let's like simulate a horror thing or just have like random chance. And it was, I, I could talk about this for too long, but like that was more associated with this kind of like moralistic woke politics. And so there was certainly a level of hostility that developed out of that. But my sense was always that, like, my, I guess my sense is that politics in like D and D spaces is it's often quite. There's often like a lot of. One of the things that I really got from participating in those spaces is that I think there's value in having people of really different, conflicting political views, like in a space, because there's often like really different voices. Like, and my sense has always been that, like, even if you, um, like, even if you go and like look at the like, roll the tabletop game board on 4chan uh which is like that's you know the kind of sump of the internet it still feels less hegemonically like racist and right wing than the other spaces to so my senses that like my sense is that D is less politicized than a lot of these other like um fandom cultures I- I think part of it is that people in D&D spaces or role-playing game spaces have kind of worked quite hard at policing those spaces to make sure that they aren't uh, taken over by by reactionary forces and, and, and worked quite hard at pushing um, reactionaries out when they raise their ugly heads. To some extent, is it related to role-playing games being like a quite a collective endeavour as well, like where the element of, of collectivity is really like essential to to actually co-producing this narrative and this game together? I think that's that's definitely true. I mean, to, to play a role-playing game successfully, you need to have friends. And, and I, I'm still really, for me, the drive of role-playing games and board games is playing them face-to-face mm. at a table with yep. people. Mm. We, which, you yeah, not only do you have friends, you've got to be able to deal with people enough that you can sit together and do a pleasurable experience. Often for years. It, yeah, often for yeah, totally. It's interesting, Matt, talking about um, you know the OSR and lamentations of the Flame Princess and things like that. Because I'm I'm quite in- interested in a new game Murkborg, which I Murkborg. which I will be running at a shop in Ipswich in a couple of weeks, and it's really interesting because I think that probably in some ways aesthetically situates itself in the same space as Lamentations of the Flame Princess, but the creators are really clear to fly their kind of at least small-L liberal left politics, right? And say, everything's everything's welcome, no racism, sexism, transphobia, don't be a dick, right? Like, so that's an in- interesting kind of cultural signifier for a game that I think is still wants to see itself as being dark and over the top and everyone dies and the world is horrible. The Lamentations people used to do that too. They used to be like, yeah, no racism, no sexism, no social justice warriors. 
So it was always, and there was always a complex relation. Like that's like that's like non-political skinheads, right? In the eighties. Yeah, exactly. Like, I've got I've got some friends who are radicals and some friends who are Nazis. I just don't make a distinction. Yeah, and it was it was much much more that aesthetic than like. I think that's kind of what I'm saying is that it was never like a right wing space, but it was definitely like a like a non-radical skinhead, like old fashioned like punk, but just being like. Well, I don't care what color you are. Like, I don't care if you're purple, kind of thing. Um, yeah. And it's like the other thing I was just thinking about is like, I ran a game like with Declan a while back that was um, set in a. It was. It's a setting called Yoon Suen that's based on like Southeast Asia and Burma, specifically. And it's made by a guy who is a, like a British Tory and specifically is like, and it's not a, like a Nazi. Like, does not have Nazi beliefs. Just has like kind of the exact politics of Jeremy Clarkson from Top Gear, just has like stuffy British Tory politics and like in that game, like uses that game to, like a lot of the stuff in that game is just like tweaking the left and being like, like he deliberately sells it as an Orientalist game and stuff like that. Um, and it's a game like, I, it's a setting I really like and really like running a game setting into that, but it's also stuff that like I just plucked out a lot of that content. Um, so for me, it's like, I don't know, this is like, Still an ongoing thing for me, it is like how to think about the politics of that, I guess. That is one nice thing about role-playing games is that because it requires often the mediation of a game master, someone who steps in between the rules or the setting and the rest of the game, you can pick and choose the the things from, from a published setting or from a rule set and I would argue probably makes a, a better experience for, for everyone involved if you do. And I think there's something interesting about that, Isaac, is that I'd say with a role-playing game specifically, but even with board games, every group of people play a game slightly differently, right? Like there's always innovations in the setting and the rules and the mood and the attitude and all those kind of things. But people still want to come together and talk about it as a broader shared experience and what happens or what doesn't happen where those individual experiences very specific of a game with a specific group of people also wants to fit into a conversation that is which we much larger group of people all share in something too and that's something that really exists and i don't really get how it works can i just talk about one thing that i desperately wanted that since i'm going to play my old person here the one thing that used to happen at conventions was a form of LARPing before LARPing was the way that people thought about LARPing, which was a kind of game called the Freeform, which was, you know, 30 people in a setting. Um, and it was like, you know, all different storylines, a giant how to host a murder. But it happened before all that became commodified. And there were some of the most kind of creative spaces and creative games that I've ever been involved in. I played this one game as a teenager, a Macquarie Con, which was the con that the Macquarie University Games Club used to run. There was a Viking feast, and the people who organised it catered a Viking feast. So the game ran for eight hours, and there was food, and it was so, it was this incredible experience. And, of course, I don't think that convention scene really exists anymore. I don't know if that freeform culture has continued or died out, but it was a really wonderful kind of gaming experience that well, I think now people would think about it as LARPing, which is something different, more emphasis on cosplay and other things like that. And 
but it was a really wonderful gaming time. That was a, a product of, of that period, and uh, I'm not I sure what happened that to that, it. That culture does does still exist, at least somewhere in the world. I'm not, I don't know if it, if it still exists in Australia, um, but but definitely in in Europe, that that kind of culture of of uh, serious LARP um, is definitely still a thing. Um, yeah, we should bring it back. As my final thoughts, is we should all bring back murder mystery parties. It's like the neck that's going to be like the next big thing. That's going to be like the next Dungeons and Dragons we bring parties. I'm, I'm, that's I'm what. In. Yeah, let's bring yeah. up parties. Well, yeah. I, I don't think we have connected. I think you could probably do some other bullshit theorization <laughs> connecting the popularity of games now to both the inability or, or why is going out so unappealing for so many people. You know, like that. Part of the part of the appeal of board games now seems part, you know that the big mass social space. Leave aside COVID, we can't do it because of COVID. But there's something about being out in public that seems to have lost an element of its appeal. And it, and so being with a smaller group of people seems more desirable. That is true. It's a level of like, trust thing. A level of like, yeah. Um... Well, it's also quite intimate, I guess. Like, let's talk about this for another just three hours. This is just going to be, like, the longest podcast in history. But it can be quite intimate, like, running a game with people. Like, it involves a level of, like, knowing somebody quite well. Just, like, do some bullshit theorization of my own. I think, you know, the the way that um, fixed capital has, like, bedded down into, like, into the city and produce, like, you know, like, people talk all the time about the increasing policing of neoliberal urbanism and stuff like that. And it does make sense that we've kind of retreated to the family home in so many different ways. Um, and gaming is kind of the cultural parallel of that. I think that brings us back to the, uh, the 19th century parlor games where, 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 where I think game design really began uh, in, in terms of like those, those were games that were designed to be played in the house with your family. Yeah. And it, I think it's what is interesting is that that disappearance of space where people do play games out to join the two things. They're often in shops now, which you know was a strat. Going back to Games Workshop was a strategy that Games Workshop used, which I always hated as a kid because it always seemed like super fucking exploitative. Like if you want to have friends come into the Games Workshop store and we'll just take all your money buying miniatures. But that that even space, you know, like the university as a space where there are people who hang out and you have a games club and you run a convention there and hundreds of people from all around the country have enough time to travel from city to city to spend a weekend playing games, that seems to have disappeared in the reorganisation of, of space, right? Um, it's harder and harder to do that, I think, let alone the university as a site of of culture you know some of you said that you have gone back to university and my impression of university is it's pretty fucking yeah, it boring um well i think we could probably realize that this is the starting off point for a total theory of society like through the lens of gaming um any final any final thoughts before Excellent. we uh, return to do it for six hours again yeah that's like it's difficult to wrap this up because there's just so many different fascinating things and like so many ways we could go from here um but uh yeah that's my final thought like this is just this just shows that this hasn't been talked about enough and it's a really under theorized thing but but i would also uh, like to undercut my radical chic by um promoting my game that i want to sell to people um, so yeah like uh, 
I, I think the other thing that's interesting is that so many of us are engaged in trying to make games now as a way of trying to realise some kind of creative work with other people. And to do that, we're engaging in like building it and designing it and selling it, which is something Isaac is doing really successfully, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm engaging in running a Kickstarter, which I feel extremely weird about. But yeah, you can you can go you can go buy my game if you want. It's on Kickstarter. Um, it's it's good. It's a fun game. You get to play cute little mice. And Dave's is is yours on Kickstarter as well. I'll make sure I link to both of them. Not not yet. We we are we are building the campaign, which again I think is a really weird experience because like we've designed a game that we find really really fun. And you want people to now get involved and try to support it. And we're just trying to work out the way that you can do that naturally, if that makes sense. Um, and also those interesting things as well, trying to get it produced in a way that it doesn't just put more plastic crap into the world made by, you know, child slaves somewhere. And on that joyous note, I'll make sure I link to everybody's um, Kickstarters and, and Twitter Thank and you. that sort of Thank thing you. in the show notes. Um, lovely. Thanks very much, everyone. Yeah, thank you. This has been lots and lots of fun, and I do just want to talk about games forever now. We could honestly, we could do like more episodes on this. Yeah, um, I, I would. I would always be interested. Yeah, lovely. In in hmm. doing that, dungeons and dialectics. 